you know, it's interesting that, that God hasn't communicated it, uh, to us through images. He's used the word. Well, many words. And, um, oh dear, I can try to do this all. Um, yeah. The, I think the reason for that is, is images create impressions, whereas words enable propositions, things that you can you know, meditate on, chew on, discuss, debate. So what does that mean for our image-saturated society? You know, all these phones that we can just scroll through image after image, video after video. Seems that um, the phones and plus, plus all these images are affecting our ability to read any book of any size and any complexity. And this book, well, it ain't small and it ain't simple. But you see, this book, while it's not written to you, it's written for you. What do I mean by that? It's not written to people who cruise around in metal boxes on wheels, who zip through the sky in metal birds. It's written to people who are much closer to them in time and culture, to the authors. But it's written for you because it tells us why we are here, who we are and why we are here. It tells us that we were made good, but we've been broken by sin. It tells us what God has done to, to fix that and that there's a permanent fix coming if we trust him. So it's worth the effort to get to know this book. A couple of thoughts. Hey, there's lots of, lots of good um, resources on the internet these days. I wish they'd been around when I was younger as a young Christian. You've got to be a bit selective. Don't have any time to talk about that some more. But the other thing I would say is we can rewire our brains. And if I could take yours truly as an example, I, got, I failed School C English. I got, I think, 93 in School C Maths. So I was into numbers rather than words. And I think my, my rather poor written English probably contributed to too many fail grades at university. Um, I learned perseverance there, but they don't give grades, sadly, for perseverance. But I got through. And then I've just plodded away, trying to take more notice of words how they're used. Fast forward some decades, and in recent times, I've found myself having to edit other people's written English, and I'm quite surprised how well I do, considering to where I've been. So you can rewire your brains, and you can train them to uh, listen for more than five minutes without an ad break, so stick with me. Oh, yay. Right, so, book of First Samuel. Samuel was one of the last of the judges. Uh, judges were people who interpreted the Mosaic law to the people, questions of the law. And he was the last one because the Israelites had a kind of well, common problem. They were sort of looking over the fence at their neighbors, and they liked what they saw. The neighbors had kings, and they wanted a king to, to lead them. Um, the, so God, you know, he... Although they were effectively rejecting God, but he didn't, he didn't stand in the way, so he sends Samuel off to anoint Saul as king. He might have looked the part, but he wasn't very keen at going out and leading the army into battle. And worse, he was not very good at obeying God. And so God had to send Samuel off to anoint someone else. And so he, 
sets off on a sort of secret mission. It doesn't explain why he turns up at the house of Jesse. And Jesse had quite a few sons. And um, yeah, Samuel automatically thought he was going to choose the oldest, but no, that wasn't the case. And he works his way down through all the sons present, and God hadn't chosen any of them. And finally, his father remembers, oh, yes, there's one more out there doing the lowly job of tending the sheep. And so they call him in. And so Samuel anoints David. Now, the next thing we learn about Saul is he's a troubled man. And we begin to see God working in David's life behind the scenes because someone in the palace knows that David is not only good at um, chasing after sheep, he's also good at playing the harp. And so David gets employed to play the harp when uh, Saul is not doing too well. It can't have been a full-time job because the next thing we learn about David is he's back home tending the sheep when his father sends him off to take lunch to his oldest, older brothers who are part of the Israelite army who are not doing very well either because they were paralyzed with fear of this chappy Goliath and his Philistine army. Now you know the story, but here's a question for you. Who are we? If we're in that story, who are we? If you've chosen David, you're in good company with lots of preachers down through the ages who have made the story about us. You know, we've got to polish up our five smooth stones to beat the Goliaths, to beat the Goliaths in our lives. But I'd like to suggest to you that if we're in that story, we're the Israelite army stuck going nowhere in need of a saviour. But for now, God is certainly working in David's life. And um, Saul promotes him in the army. And he uh, does very well. In fact, too well. Saul becomes jealous, very jealous. And uh, one day there, he's um, playing his harp for, for Saul. And Saul picks up a spear and throws it at him. David ducks, but that spear was thrown so hard as Craig pointed out to me one day, it actually lodged in the wall. Now here's the incredible thing to me, is that sometime later, David sat back down in that chair and played his harp, and Saul did it again. How's that for trust? Eventually, David realises that uh, Saul really does mean to kill him, and so he um, has to make himself scarce. And now David's faith is, is really trusted, uh, tested, sorry. Now I know, you know as, as Craig's mentioned, there's many people facing hard times, but um, you'd have to agree that David's trials are off the chart. I mean, everything he has known, he's, now, he's going to be cut off from all that. Um, and we see that he doesn't always trust God. He goes and um, you know, fear overtakes him. He lies to the, to the priest at Nob and, and that actually ended up tra- uh, costing that guy his life. Um, and then we see David actually leaving the promised land altogether, leaving Israel. And where does he go? Of all places, Goliath's territory. And initially he gets on well with the king, 
But then the, the advisors, the heat goes on from his advisors, and the only way he escapes from there was pretending to, to have gone mad. He becomes a dribbling, crazy, homeless madman. And you read it and you think, you ponder, you think, David, what were you thinking going there? Gradually he gathers a group of men around him and King Saul, instead of fighting Israel's enemies, spends his, spends his time chasing David around the countryside and more than once, David narrowly escapes capture, and some of the Psalms recount that and David's thankfulness for God's care for him. And then that brings us to chapter 24, 1 Samuel 24. Now David's trust in God is about to face a very different test, one that he has never faced before. What did trusting God mean for David this time? David and his men had sought refuge in a very big cave. And who should come waltzing in the entrance but no other than King Saul himself, seeking a place to relieve himself? Let's um, pick up from verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfold, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. Now like me, you might be wondering, you know, how come Saul didn't see anything or hear anything that was going on in there? Well, I mean, he just come, come in from the bright outside, so, you know, it takes a while for eyes to adjust. And the other thing, there was probably about 3,000 men in his army all sort of waltzing past, so there would have been a fair bit of noise um, that probably covered other stuff. Um, now, uh, just notice what his men said. Um, and here... Uh, in a more literal version, in the ESV, it, it, it has, a, has it in the past tense. They say, here is the day of which the Lord said to you. So notice that's in the past tense. Um, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. So it seems there must have been some prophecy in the past that um, his men think are, uh, are now being fulfilled. You know, I have some sympathy for David's, David's men. Saul's been chasing them around the countryside for a long time. They've been living rough. And uh, now look at this opportunity that suddenly opens up. You can imagine them thinking, well, this is our chance to be finished with this kind of life. We could, we could go back to our families. And others are probably thinking, ah, David, when David becomes king, we might be able to pick up a plum job in his, in his administration. For his men, what counted was the favourable circumstances backed up by a suggested word from God, and they concluded this must be the plan of God. You know, the means justified the ends. This, this would be such a good outcome. I don't know, anyone been in a situation similar to this where the circumstances just seem to be coming together? There was one time where it was a little bit like that in our lives, and I was sure, you know, God was going to release us from where we were, but no, it didn't happen. 
Let's um, carry on, verse four, middle of verse 4. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed, for the Lord himself has chosen him. We're not told whether David was influenced by, by his men to do this or he had some other had planned it this way, but he was conscious stricken because cutting off the robe was, well, it was against the king. It was a flagrant violation of his, of his position. It was against God's anointed. It was not David's place to remove Saul. And ultimately, it was against God himself. So David, in verse 7, says, David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. I think he had to work very hard on restraining their men at that point. And then something quite incredible happens. And I'm just going to read the next several verses. After Saul had left, this is from verse 8, after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord and the King. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say, I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for you trying to do, for you are trying to, for what you are trying to do for, to me. But I will never harm you, as the old proverb proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend time chasing one who is worthless as a dead dog? And a single flea. May the Lord therefore judge you, judge, judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. Well, isn't that a credible response from David and very skilled? Not yet. Oh, Kelly, you'll have to take it, take it over. Um, you know, David could have come out immediately and said oh you're wicked and I'm not but notice he addresses Saul with, with terms of respect my lord my father he humbly you know, bows right to the ground and look, notice he doesn't blame Saul he says he blames the advisors why do you listen to the people who say and he recognises Saul and he says the lord's anointed he demonstrates that he didn't intend to hurt him. He had a piece of the robe there. 
And look, he didn't pump himself up. He called himself a dead dog and a flea. And finally, he left God to judge. But notice he actually expected God to judge. It wasn't just a passive thing. So that's a, a pretty amazing response, isn't it? While we could learn more from it, we need to head over to the New Testament for more on our, our subject today. So I'm going over to 1 Peter chapter 2, which Darian read well. Um, the book of Perse Peter was written to uh, Christians who were scattered around the Roman Empire. And in verse 9, he reminds his readers that they are a chosen people, set apart as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Notice that they were set apart. In other words, whichever country they were in, they were, as Peter was saying, they had a different identity. They were, they were God's people. And so are we. we. We should be walking to a different drum, marching to a different drum. Therefore, as God's people, he tells them in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's the unbelievers, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, or as, as the New Living has it, on the day when he judges the world. Is that up there? Yep. Um, notice that these Christians, these, these slaves or servants, they were being falsely accused. There's a, let's tap it on one. See there, it says, when they speak against you as evildoers, they are being falsely accused. So how should they respond? With good deeds. That's something we all find hard, don't we? When someone's falsely accusing us, it causes us to react. We want to, you know, defend ourselves. You might want to almost rise up and hit back. That's sort of natural. But what does Peter say? Verse 13. Is that up there? Can we come up? No, another one. Thanks. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or the king as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. Notice it says, be subject or submit for the Lord's sake. So we're not, we're not defending ourselves. It's for his glory that we should do the right thing. And then it says, every human institution. What does that mean? No exceptions. Allow me the contrast. Their emperor wasn't some woman standing up, standing up and telling them to be kind. Roman emperors were cutthroat people. I mean, they, crucifixion was their trademark. And local governors, they would invest huge resources and grandiose, grandiose projects for their own benefit that impoverished the population. I was hearing recently about Herod the Great. He was the Herod around the time of Jesus' birth. And he created 
artificial mountain so it could be seen from all around. And I mean, you know, there were no diesel-powered things in those days. That's a lot of human grunt to, to build that. And below it was this palatial holiday abode. And later, when he was nearing the end of his life, he instructed that immediately after he died, prominent citizens in the, in the area were to, be, were to be murdered. So there'd be lots of crying, and people would think they're all crying for him. Now, here's the thing. None of this sort of behavior made any difference to Paul or Peter. Paul says, pray for your leaders. And Peter says, submit to them all. You know, I, I think we're sort of at the, the sharp end of what it means to trust God here. And I struggle too. I mean, if you're squirming, so do I. The implications of this. This teaching cuts across messages we get from the culture. Like on the left, uh, we're told to encourage to speak truth to power. And on the right, there's, there's a sort of an elevation of personal autonomy that comes out like, you know, the government has no right to, to tell you what you do with your body or the church. One observation that, that's helped me get some, gain some perspective on Peter's command is that you need to recognize that even a corrupt, poorly performing government is better than no government at all. You only need to look at a place like Haiti at the moment, just descending into gang violence. All right, moving on to verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So it doesn't matter whether they're free men or slaves. They were still set apart by God to do good works. That includes submitting to the authorities. Now, I think I need to pause at this moment and point out what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should just passively let abuse go on. If you're in a position to step away or to contact someone in authority, you should do it. And there's biblical warrant for that. But we need to recognize that most of the readers of Peter's letter weren't in a position to do anything about abuse or unfairness. Life was hard for many of them. There was no such thing as human rights. And so he's encouraging them to do the right thing in all circumstances. And then in verse 17, he greatly expands on his teaching on submission. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Anyone left out? So how do we honor everyone? Well, we don't discriminate. We're to treat all men with dignity because they're all made in the image of God. Remember, we got that message loud and clear in James 1 recently, hey? You know, telling the poor people to stand over there or sit on the floor. Not, that's how to discriminate. 
And then we're to love the brotherhood. So maybe some of you, are, you know, having fairly have no struggle with uh, submitting to authorities. What about this one? Showing love for our fellow Jesus followers. Um, Bob Diffenbaugh, if you can pop the next slide up, who's a Bible commentator that uh, those who know me, I appreciate lots, says, while God has sovereignly ordained governmental officials to hold positions of authority over us, we should also, we are also to regard our fellow believers as having a higher claim on us than our own selfish desires. Therefore, submission is not only a matter of authority, but also a matter of priority. So, give um, our fellow believers that have a higher claim on us. This is a matter of priority. Romans. Romans 12.10, Paul says, Love one another with brother, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Is anyone competitive here? Well, here's a bit of healthy competition. Try and out, outdo your fellow, fellow Christians in loving the, the believers, eh? Next one, fear God. Now, I see this as a reminder to keep God's sovereignty and power in mind. Keep an eternal perspective. But he's a good God, as we were reminded in that, that last song declared. That we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we need to be ready to fully submit to him. And finally, honour the emperor. Well, we talked a fair bit about that, but uh, a, um, the emperor is to be honoured as a, as, a, as a man or a person but not worshipped as a god. Let's at this point pop back to 1 Samuel for a bit of a personal twist in David's story. Remember how David had humbled himself, he debased himself, he he treated Saul with respect, he'd shown him that he uh, did not desire to hurt him. And then we have this, continuing the, the story in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 24. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son? And of course, you know, Saul and David had quite a history. Then he began to cry, and he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. And then Saul went home, and David and his men went back to their stronghold. Well, this is an amazing turnaround, isn't it? Remember, I mean, this guy's been wanting to kill David for years. Been marching around the countryside after David. But after what David had done, his act of grace, and what he'd said with, with great humility, that was enough to make Saul weep. 
And it was enough to him make him face the truth. You know, that David was going to take over the throne. And that was maybe the first time in a long time. Sadly, the change in Saul didn't last. Um, I'll share a little bit of, of, an, of something that happened to me uh, in an earlier employment. I, I felt my boss was being unfair. And um, I was stewing over whether I should confront him. And in that time, I, I had all these negative reactions. I was, you know, I was not wanting to co cooperate, uh, and I was sort of wanting to minimize contact. And I was studying this passage, and it kind of revealed my, my sinful thoughts. And I felt the Lord encouraging me to, to follow David's example, to leave it in the Lord's hands. And if there was going to be a confrontation, well, that was in his timing. Finally, I want to say that I, hope, um, I don't want you to come away today thinking, well, you just got to dial up the submission or dial up the honor. Um, you cannot do this in your own strength. We need the Lord's help. As we trust in Christ, he can help us if we're relying on him. Let's pray. Mm. Well, Father God, thank you for revealing yourself to us and for your spirit working in our lives. Lord, we so want to learn to trust you. You want, to, you want us to learn to trust you in all circumstances. And it seems, Lord, that we're often like that child being taken to preschool and for the first time, and they find other people there ordering them around, and they don't like it. We just have that sort of reaction, don't we? Help us, Lord, help us learn, Lord, that, that you have us covered, no matter what comes our way. And that even includes coping with unjust authority figures. So, Lord, yeah, help us do the right thing and be worthy examples of our Lord and Saviour who submitted himself to a very unjust legal process and let himself be cruelly put to death so that we might have life. Thank you, Lord, for that. Amen.